You're about to listen to another inspiring word from House on the Rock Church, the London Lighthouse. For more information and interaction with House on the Rock, please visit our website on hotr.org.uk. Hallelujah. Our guest is a dear brother and is a, uh, a dear friend, and I'm just so happy to have him in the house today. He's going to be bringing the word shortly. He's a man of great impact and great relevance and great significance. And I cannot effectively share all the various things I would want to share with him. But we've put together a short video introduction of him that will roll shortly. Immediately after that video introduction, the next voice you'll be hearing will be the voice of my dear friend, my brother, a man for the season, a son of Issachar in modern times, Pastor Kunle Shorian. Media, please roll the intro. Ahead of the curve, for well over two decades, Ola Kunle Shorian has been a global thought leader, ace coach, and change agent. As a marketplace apostle, Listen, he has effectively bridged the gap between the circular and the spiritual, showing how indeed economic, relational, and physiological prosperity is rooted in spiritual intelligence. An official member of the Forbes Business Council, he has been counselor to kings and coach to countless leaders and high-impact individuals. He is Chief Knowledge Officer and Lead Strategist at the Kenneth Shomion Research and Ideas LLC, founder of Australia Africa and CEO of Africa House. His passion for empowering the positions of Africans in the diaspora for greater impact and influence where they are located and also back in the motherland is quite evident. He is fondly known as the Rockus by friends and colleagues alike because of the disruptive leadership competence that he consistently brings to the table. Truly a man of many parts, he is a futurist, iconoclast, philanthropist, teacher, apologist and prophet to name a few of the many hats that he wears. This phenomenal public speaker brings practical answers to real questions, unique solutions to persistent problems and insightful direction to confusing situations. His keen vision of the future positions him to equip his listeners to not just react to challenging and changing times, but to ride the waves and lead the change. It is our honor and pleasure to introduce to some and represent to others this happily married husband and father and guest speaker to the house on the rock London. Please warmly receive Pastor Kunle Shorion. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. God bless you. I feel really blessed to be here. Um, I'm, I'm so excited. I, I really wanted to know that um, I feel greatly at peace and inspired in this moment. I want to really thank Pastor Timmy, uh, the entire leadership, uh, Pastor Mrs., all the great leaders here, lieutenants who work behind the scene. Um, all the good people uh, for your investment in the grace of God upon my life and for permitting me to um, speak to you and to your spirits today. Um, it's um, always a honor every time I have to hold this microphone. My history and the 
volatility, complexity, violence in a lot of what is in my past has never given me the misfortune of getting comfortable on this microphone. Every time I hold this microphone, I come with a lot of humility. Um, I just never get used to it. Whether I'm standing in front of one person or in front of 100,000 people, which I have many times, uh, or in front of 10,000 people, it doesn't really make a difference. It's just a big privilege to be useful, a real big privilege to be useful. Um, so I'm really very grateful. Um, I see a lot of good people in the house. You know, Pastor Edbert, good to see you. You know, good people that I've shared my past with in different ways. Ahmed, Yomi, um, Kingsley, Kizo, you know, quite a number of people I could name names who um, tried to show up today. I really, God bless you. Sheung Ononisi, God bless you. And all the people I didn't mention, God bless you. You know, uh, the good people of House on the Rock, God bless you. Put your hands together for yourself. But one thing I never cease to do is to take my time to speak about leaders that I find very authentic. The last time I flattered someone or made an attempt to do so was 1997, that I made an, maybe an unguarded positioning to say what is not as exactly true about someone or to permit that person to live in his lie or in his own press or media in my presence, right, 1997. I had an experience there that shifted me totally. Now I've come to grow into my freedom I was born free, I would die free. The freedom of my conscience is my greatest asset. I owe nobody nothing. You have no idea of what it means to wake up in the morning and to know that no human being on earth decides what you do or how you do it. No human being on the earth. You have no idea what that level of freedom is. To know that only God, you know, I told someone that I wanted to get a type of car. And he said, why, why do you need that type of car? I said, well, I need a car that cannot stop except God stops it or I stop it. <laughs> you know, there are some cars that can stop by themselves. But I need a car that if I don't stop it, the only person that can stop it is God. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I, I, I manage a soul and a spirit that does what it wills and there's no searching of my understanding. Only me or God can destroy me. The devil has no part in it. Trust me. Only me or God can destroy me. And only me or God can lift me. No human being can. You see? So the freedom of my conscience is, 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 some, is priceless around me. I say all of that to say what I want to say now. Because when you come to church on Sunday morning, and you are a guest speaker, part of the expectation, the protocol of ministry, is that you say nice things about your host. You know, you use good words, you, you, allay, you arrange it well. Even if it's not true, just say it. That's part of the protocol of ministry. So your challenge will be that, okay, when he's saying nice things about Pastor Timmy, that's what he's supposed to do. You know, he's supposed to come to church and say nice things. You will think so, and I forgive you. The only reason why you are thinking so is because you don't know me 
and you've not spent time to follow my work. If you follow my work, if you have seen some of my videos online, I'm sure you have seen me. They, as they call me up like that, I just take the mind, I pray in Jesus' name, and I start speaking. As my investment in the continuity of that environment. Because if I choose to speak about a pastor, I may be terminating the collective growth and association of that environment. So my silence is my investment in their togetherness and continuity. You see what I'm saying? I've said so many things that I hope you understand. So you have an authentic man in this house, an authentic man. I don't have to say that. If I don't say that, there's nothing he can do to me or anybody can do to me. The mistake is to give me the microphone. Whether I will hold it again is a symposium discussion. Neither does it matter to me, right? I don't hold this microphone because I need help. I'm a helper. I help people, people don't help me. If you find the privilege to do anything around me to help me, you are blessed. It's not something I look forward to. You are free to call it arrogance. It's okay. People's reality are upside down. They think like that. When they see nine, they call it six. When they see six, they call it nine. When they see confidence, they call it pride. When they see love, they say it's foolishness. When they see prudence, they say it's stingy. You know, their reality is just upside down. So it's okay. I love you, sir, man. Thank you for your strength. Leaders, pastors, thank you for all you represent. I celebrate you. God bless you. God bless us on the rock. In Jesus' name. Open your Bibles very quickly to Genesis in chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis in chapter 1, verse 26. I'm just going to read three or four scriptures, and then we get into some good word. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth, except your fellow man, in Jesus' name. Except your fellow man is my addition, but it's true. Then... Put your hands there and let's read Galatians in chapter 4 real quick. Galatians in chapter 4. Galatians in chapter 4, verse 1. Galatians 4, 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Hallelujah. Amen. First Corinthians 3, real quick. First Corinthians 3 from verse 1, real quick. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people. I couldn't do it. I had to speak to you as canal, 
even though I have the capacity, the clarity, the knowledge and the intelligence to speak to you as spiritual people, I had to endure the misfortune of speaking to you as carnal people, as to babes in Christ. I don't mean you. <laughs> this is written thousands of years ago, so let's be clear. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, even though I have enough solids. But I have to feed you with milk, for until now, you were not able to receive it, and even now, you are still not able. Amen? And lastly, James in chapter 4. James in chapter 4, from verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lost and do not... And you lost, sorry, and do not have. You mother and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Then when you ask, you still do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Jesus, this moment is yours. Use it to your glory. You won't challenge us. You don't do that. You just change us. You make us better and take us to a new place. We thank you for precision in the spirit today. Spirit of the living God, thank you for counsel. Thank you for shapes from point A to point B. Whatever those points are for everyone listening today, for those listening online and for those who will listen tomorrow or at any point in time in our clock as human beings, let this moment be representative of a measurable significant change to the imp for the, the, to the glory of your kingdom, to the, to the growth and the advancement of your kingdom and the glory of your holy name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God bless you. Thank you all. Pastor, can I step down? Great. So, part of what we miss as Christians, part of what we miss is the idea that God has not set us up here so that we can live well and so that we can be comfortable. That is not why God is working in your life. God is not working in your life to fix your shoes, to fix your perfumes, to put food in your house. God is not in your life for welfare economics. God is not a government. God doesn't work on social security. God is not really here to make you, to build you a house or to make your enemies live long so that you can see. <laughs> nonsense. Practical nonsense. It's, 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 it's embarrassing to think that someone can articulate that a whole God who found the sacrifice of his son necessary will now come to this world with an adjustable esteem to really come and be proving points on anybody's behalf so that your enemies can know that, that what exactly? You know, symposium discussion, right? So that your enemies, enemies can know. That's not why God is here. God is not going to heal you so that people, your enemies can know that you have a God. You know, people say, said some of those things in the Old Testament because at that time, you must understand that there was no revelation of the ministry of the devil. There was no revelation of the ministry of the devil. The ministry of the devil was not fully revealed until the New Testament. 
So every act of evil and goodness or even godliness were attributed. Every spiritual maneuver of any kind was attributed to a divine move by God. That's why you will read scriptures like, um, is it not from the mouth of God that both good and evil go forth? You read those kind of scriptures in Lamentations. But, but we know that evil does not come from God. You read scriptures like an evil spirit from God tormented Saul. You see, an evil spirit, we, we now know that God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt anyone. So an evil spirit cannot come from God. But at that time, anything that is spiritually or mysteriously appreciated is essentially attributed to a godly move, that a move from God's throne. Because they did not have a revelation of the ministry of the devil. They also did not have a revelation of the ministry of the Father. That's why nobody said, my Father we in heaven, in the Old Testament. The adoption of sons that empowers us to say, Abba, Father, was not essentially curated at all. Not about even being aware of it. It wasn't curated until the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Few people broke into that understanding in the Old Testament. Very few people. The best we have is people who are friends of God. Sons of God was a different articulation. Are we on the same page? So you must understand that we know in part, we prophesy in part, we understand in part. If God tells me to tell you that you are blessed, I might find myself telling you, God said you are blessed and he will give you a car. Now I've delivered the message and more. But another day I can deliver the message and less. And another day, depending on how I am in the spirit, I could deliver it as it is. God said you are blessed. All of them is still God moving. Because God understands my human frailty before he sends a message through me. The goal is that the message will come in. It may require emphasis a few times through some other vessels. Therefore, there is a humility that must reside in you when you come in contact with contest of divine communication. The contest is a beginning. There's premise of the communication. There's the principle in the communication. There is the dispensation in which the communication is happening. There's the palliative that defines that communication in itself and the dispensation. So a palliative, for example, it will be uh, orphanage. An orphanage is a palliative. No human being is designed to grow up perfectly in an orphanage. Once you are in an orphanage, you, you, there's a lot of attack on your soul and on your spirit just because the natural environment of a family is not going to be present in an orphanage. Are we on the same page? Yes. But God had to give men the wisdom to create the palliative called of orphanage in response to human unguardedness and human indiscipline. While I do not prefer that people should live in orphanages, I would rather allow orphanages to exist in an attempt to salvage the destiny of my children. That is a palliative measure. And so the law, for example, in scriptures was a palliative. It was a means to an end, to hold forth before the main deal arrives. It is not an end in itself. And all through scripture, when you are reading it, you must be sensitive to contest. Contest is key. 
But contest will never be enough. There is the premise that holds the contest together. There is the principle that defines the premise in itself. Every time you see a miracle, for example, in the Bible, what you are calling a miracle most of the time is not the miracle. The miracle is a principle that is reproducible. The drama of the miracle is what we like to celebrate as the miracle. And God doesn't repeat dramas, he immortalizes the principle. So the Red Sea parted into two. The Red Sea is not a miracle. The Red Sea parting is the drama of the miracle. That is why another one did not part. Because essentially, it doesn't repeat the dramas. But you see, the miracle can happen again depending on the container that it came with. Essentially, the drama that it came with, you may not even give thanks. The drama at the Red Sea was that the Red Sea parted into two. The, the principle was that, and the, and the contest was that he parted into two to save a threatening situation. The principle was that a people moved from a point of impossibility to possibility. That is the principle. Now, while the Red Sea never parted again, the principle is still, every time you fly from London to Lagos, the principle has happened again. In fact, you cross the Red Sea literally. For real. You actually cross it. But the primitivity of the time, the primitivity of Bible times and of any time determines the character of the drama. The goal is the principle. The drama is determined by the prevailing ignorance of the time. In other words, what you guys can handle is what your miracle will come in. It's not that a higher resolution of that drama does not exist, but your infrastructure cannot handle that higher resolution. So this lower resolution is what will deliver your present state, but don't camp around that. Find the principle in it. So when human beings were ready, God gave us the wisdom for planes. And now we can cross the Red Sea cheaper, faster, easier, <laughs> low investment of time and energy of people, and everything works in a system. And we are crossing the Red Sea all day longer. We are not, we are not, we are not even moved. We are not even thinking. We are just crossing it like that. People pray when they want to move from London to New York. They commit the pilot into God's hand. They commit the plane into God's hand. They commit the wings into God's hands. Everything into God's hand. We will live. A lot of times, all of that is just pure fear. Because the same people will not pray when they are going to the restroom. It's all movement. Whether it's movement to the restroom, or movement to the next street, or movement to New York or to Lagos, it's movement. Assuming the devil can kill you at all, assuming he can, which is easier. And you know, Jesus always asks the question of which is easier. Because it's, 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 it's the equation of development. You have to find the difference between complexity and simplicity, and the one that leads to the goal fastest. That's why Jesus always asks, which is easier? To say, get up and walk. Or, so he always asks, which is easier? So if you are the devil, think about it, which is easier? If you can really kill someone, since you are not omnipresent as devil, if you are with me, you can't be with Pastor Timmy. 
You know, the devil is not with you every time. I told somebody, I said, let me tell you something. The devil is not even with you at all. <laughs> you don't qualify for that focus. Because the devil cannot be every time, everywhere at the same time. Your nuisance value is low resolution. The devil is not bothered about, see, he's worried more about Pastor Temi. There are some weak demons that are attending to you. He doesn't even have enough in demons. Because we know how many rebelled. And it has not expanded. So it is that number that has rebelled from the beginning that is, that is still on ground today. It's God that is omnipresent. It's God that has innumerable company of angels. You see? It's God that has innumerable company. So God can be everywhere at the same time. His angels are more than enough, innumerable. They are not counted. They can be, his own demons are not enough. He is not omnipresent. Neither of them is omnipresent. So if you are that kind of devil, won't you measure your evil properly and be more precise in your management? And if you that has lived for only 40 years or 30 years can figure that out, what about somebody who has been living for thousands of years and they said is the father of lies, not of liars. So the, the, the system, the craftsmanship that delivers deception, he's the master of it. Trust me, he has figured it out. I don't have to jump everywhere. There's no time. I'm locked into a destruction that is sure. So I have zero tolerance, zero energy for destruction. So if you are the devil, wouldn't you rather just kill that person on his bed than wait for 30,000 feet? So he now needs to fly 30,000 feet. You now go and meet him there and organize and send two demons there. Who's going to manage Pastor Edbert when you send another demon to? So we don't have time. So the devil must be, and he came to steal, to kill, to destroy, and to do it at the fastest level possible. That is why people don't know that the devil is so smart, he would rather attack you when you are a baby, when you cannot defend yourself, and sow seeds in your life, you will manage the rest of your life. And just take his eyes off, I've dealt with this one. The program is running. Put a software there and go, and go and deal with this one. Why did he go for Moses at that age? He went for Jesus at that age. Trust me, he came for you too. I don't have time to break that down. I can show you how the devil came for every human being at that age. And I can tell you exactly what he tried to do. In fact, I will try all I can to get there this minute. Stay with me. Are we here? So if the devil can kill you at all, he doesn't need you to take a flight to do it. And when you pray, because you want to travel distance, and you don't pray when you are going to the restroom now, you are suggesting sadly, naively, and unfortunately, that the power of God to save, for example, is sensitive, and the vitality of the devil and his power to destroy, if he has it, is distance sensitive. Such that the farther you travel, the more risky the game is, the more God has to show up, or the devil gets more dangerous. He doesn't need you to move an inch to destroy you if he can. Because quite frankly, he can't. The real problem is that you think he can. I had a dream one time and I, I didn't bother to pray about it. 
Six days after, I was speaking to someone about a dream. You know what the dream is, actually? It was a dream. I was flying out that, after, that morning, and I had a dream that my plane crashed. And so I just got up, took my garment, packed my bags, and got on the plane. And I flew, and I landed, and then we moved. And about six days later, I was discussing with someone. I said, ah, ah, man of God, next time, ah. I said, are we not talking? <laughs> now you're talking to me about next time? Next time, really? So you wouldn't take the flight if it were you? Said, ah, you know, we have to pray, we have to pray. I said, I don't have that assumption. I don't walk like that. First of all, the keys of death are in the hand of God. I'm not aware that he gives the devil once in a while. <laughs> I'm not aware. I really cannot be killed. I will die because death is the visa to heaven. I mean, how can you want to go to heaven and die for God's sake? So I'm going to die. I have, I'm fearless in the face of death. But you see, I have an assignment that I am aware of. That assignment cannot, I can't go anywhere on done. When I'm done, I don't want to overstay my welcome because a minute after your welcome is If you go to someone's house, they want you to leave. And you have been talking all day. They, say, they want you to leave. They will say, I want to sweep this place. <laughs> then you will get up. And then you move. Oh, you're you move to the balcony. They say, you didn't get the message. Uh, we want to switch up the light here. Let's move to it. Ah, okay, well, let's go, let's go. You move to the gates. You see, you want to release the dogs. You say, okay, let's go outside of the gates. And you say, bros, you need to go. We are done. We need to go down. The problem there is not that they don't love you. It's that you have overstayed your welcome. A minute after you overstay your welcome, anywhere is disgrace. So say, let your feet really be in your neighbor's house. This they turn and hate you. There's selective investment. There's something called selective investment of time and energy. You have to qualify, and everybody has to qualify. You have to be selective about who, what, and where qualifies for the investment of your time and your energy. You have to make that investment. You have to make that selection. So I'm saying all of this to let you understand that. I mean, somebody went to bed. And had a dream. In the dream, he was he was killed. And he called the next morning to say, Ah, this is what happened to me. Thank you. This is what happened to me. I said, Well, is anybody going to if, if you kill somebody in the dream, would they arrest you the next day? He said, No. I said, Sir. Nobody's going to arrest you. This is why people now go and kill somebody in the dream. You now go and meet the person in real life and say, <laughs> <laughs> She'll just slap you. What are you doing? What's wrong with your eyes? Why are you doing this? Because you saw me last night in the dream. Because I, what? That's what I'm saying. I eat in my dream at least about four or five times in a week. Am I causing trouble for you? The food I eat in my dreams, I'm, I, and I'm not lying. I've not seen them in real life before. They are so futuristic, 
So I'm, I'm looking at the color of even the colors. I was telling somebody that we've not seen color fully yet. Just like we thought we knew all the planets until we are discovering new planets now. I said, some colors are still coming. You see, I, said, I see them in my dreams, in my food. Those colors, I, I don't see them in real life. And you know, they don't give this microphone to fools. With all my eating in my dream, I'm here, and I'm giving instructions. You better run away, because somebody talking to you is eating in his dreams. What do you think? The Bible says you will eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God. Somebody feeds you physically, they come to fix you, fix you, feed you, you are sleeping. Isn't that amazing? Why do you think it's the devil? <laughs> whatever you call it, you say, whatever Adam call it, so shall it. So if you like, if you say, yeah, I'm dead, that's it, you are dead. Or you can say, Father, I bless your name. You are too much. You feed me everywhere. You, you are even feeding me the dream. That's it. Everything is converted. Even if it's meant for evil, it's converted immediately. Once you bless God for it, why should you be judged for what you thank God for? That's scripture, by the way. Because the thanksgiving combats every process. But somebody else can eat and say, yeah, I'm dead. That's it. What is killing you is not what you are eating. It's your mentality that is curating the software that will destroy you. I'm going somewhere. And so there are contexts that you can lock yourself into that limits you and weakens your power, disempowers you totally. And then you are around, but you are not present because the culture does not feel the weight of your contribution. Are we on the same page? And so this welfare economics type of theology that suggests that the grace and the awesomeness of in your life is measured by how much welfare economics it can align with, meaning how much money it can put in your bank account, how much clothing it can put in your wardrobe, the kind of uh, how you fly, whether it's coach or business class or first class, you know, those kind of testimonies. People testify that they got a visa. People testify like that. People come to church actually to testify that. Uh, maybe you don't you know, go to Africa, you see some strange testimonies. People testify when they buy a car. As the goodness of God, it Muslims buy, Buddhists buy, atheists buy that same car, even bigger ones. Car is not a testimony. It's a tool of effectiveness. Now, your years in poverty can condition you to celebrate a thing as a me measure of the substance of your life. That is slavery in itself. You see, some people are so poor, all they have is money. And there is a poverty that is not the absence of cash. It's the wretchedness of the human condition deep in the soul. where you measure the meaning of your life by the kind of cars you drive, the house you live, how much money you have in the bank, the watch you wear. You see, it's something, but you are just with a crown, a king, no doubt, because people celebrate you as one, but you have a crown on your head 
as a one-eyed king in the community of the blind. Two dead bodies trying to enter one coffin. Fool celebrating fool, short-sightedness emphasizing short-sightedness. Weakness resonating with weakness. There is a sympathetic resonance that builds a community of mediocrity in the name of God. car with superior customer care, product development, market penetration, right culture within the organization, they buy that same car all day without cheating, without robbing, giving God glory. And guess what? God is not bothered. God is not angry. In fact, God is blessing them. Come on now. God is blessing them because they seem to be more focused. Do you think a Range Rover matters to Bill Gates? It doesn't matter to him. What matters to him is to create a world with the type of economics that he's involved in. He's the producer, you are the consumers. You know why Africa is poor? We produce what we don't consume. We consume what we don't produce. The little we produce is as assisted by nature. If it's not in the ground, we can do nothing. It's not that that's how we are, but that's who we have become. And that's sad. Are we together? So a lot of things is happening in the world, guys. Companies are shaping culture. There are individuals that are more prosperous than nations in Africa. There are countries with a total GDP of $20 billion. An amount is resident in somebody's bank account. One individual. There are six people in America, six people in America that are more prosperous than the whole of the continent of Apart from the fact that 1% of the population of the world hold more wealth than 99% of that same population. So 99% of the wealth in the world is in the hand of 1% of the population. Think about that. And if you go and audit it, most of the people in that 1% don't speak in tongues. They don't do prayer of agreement at Google. I hope you know. They don't do laying on of hands at Samsung. They don't do vigil at Apple. Hello? Come on now. You pray to death all your life. What do you have? You are very glad to have 50,000 pounds coming to your life every month because you have plugged into an economy of people who don't speak in tongues, who don't believe in your God. You are making a lot of money because you have an economics inside the business model of Amazon. But the guys who created Amazon don't go to church. Bill Gates said, and I quote, in terms of the allocation of time and resources, religion is not a good use of time. You can't judge him. You can't. What are you, are you going to judge him? It's Bill Gates. What has your God produced for you? What do you have since you've been worshiping this God? How has he helped you? I'm causing trouble for you now, right? How has he helped you, really? You've gone to church all your life, prayed your life out, spoke in tongues, fasted, vigils all day long. What has he produced? A few cars to impress the blind around you. A few clothes to make people around you shudder. Because when you come to church to share those testimonies, we know why you came. You have not come to celebrate the arrival of a machine in your life to give you speed, efficiency, and power. 
you have come to celebrate an instrument that represents superiority to the blind who observe you. And so every time you come to church to testify, you are testifying not because of the essence of the machine that you have, that you drive every day, but because of the poverty resident in the soul of the majority who don't have it. So it is the lack in the majority that defines how special that testimony is for you and for them. That is what we call sympathetic resonance based on weakness and mediocrity. You rather fly business class, but somebody owns the plane. Your own testimony is to fly business class. And people who are not born again own Boeing. Somebody own, some people own Delta Airlines. Somebody owns Virgin Atlantic. Yours is to come and show that I'm, I'm flying Virgin and get into the plane and take all the pictures and harass the small minds who are observing you. You know, everywhere you go, you're not taking the picture of the plane, you're taking the picture of the food, you're not taking the picture of the food, you're taking the picture of your belt, you're not taking the picture of the belt, you're taking the picture of your perfume. You are just most of the time a weak fabric who on his own is not free to stand privately in strength and so needs some form of intangible validation to prove that you are doing something and you are in motion. Most of the time, not all the time, sometimes it's just you sharing, but most of the time it's weakness finding validation from the weak. There's a freedom of the soul that transcends what is going on around you. There's a freedom that only prioritizes what is going on inside of you. True joy is inside out. A bottle of beer can make you very happy because it's outside in. The pursuit of happiness is weak. As a matter of fact, it's impractical in a world that is volatile. Something outside of you will always bring an unplanned interruption that we question everything you have erected around you. Something has to be inside of you. If only in this world we have hope, we are the most miserable of men, scriptures say. The most miserable. And like I said, some people are so poor, all they have is money. Now let's be clear. Every human being is enslaved to something, no matter who you are. Every human being from the pope to the bishop to the pastor, to the CEO, to the every human being living is enslaved to something. True freedom is the ability to choose what enslaves you. That's true freedom. When the choice of your slavery is made for you, that is when you are in a negative place. When you make that choice, you are free, even if that choice is wrong. At least you are responsible for it and in your wrongness, you are not pointing fingers. There's no testimony in being wrong. But you, it's better to be wrong making your own cause than be wrong making other people's cause and blaming them for your own inadequacy. You should never complain about what you permit. It is a child that complains about what you permit. You own it because you permitted it. If you own your foolishness, you stand a chance to graduate to wisdom faster. The experience of wisdom itself is a, is, the experience of foolishness itself is a constant. Somebody must be foolish for wisdom to continue to have value. There's nothing you can do about it. If there's no foolishness, there'll be no terms of reference for wisdom. 
If somebody is not a fool, how do we know the wise? So we shouldn't bother about the weights of foolishness. It's a constant and a necessity that gives relevance to wisdom. And so we are wise is that there are fools. Now who the fool will be is a symposium discussion because foolishness is an office and somebody has to occupy it. Now, when people are occupying it, that's not my problem. I can't eliminate foolishness in the world. As long as the devil breaks, when people say we want to eradicate rape, I laugh. I say, this is why you don't get to your goals on time. You want to eradicate rape in an irrational world with irrational people who have perfect control over their will? You can you can alleviate it. You can't eradicate poverty. Jesus said the poor you always have. There's nothing called poverty eradication. You can alleviate poverty. It means you can reduce the nuisance value of that experience. You can't eliminate it. The only way to eliminate those kind of things is to kill the devil. And it's not dying, trust me. It's here for a long time. Am I talking to you? So, I'm saying this. I can go on and on. But I'm saying these things to let us know that Something incomplete can be the highest celebration of your life. And you can celebrate mediocrity as excellence for the rest of your life. And people can join you on that mold. There is a rebellion. There's a creative rebellion that must live inside of you to reject these labels that make you feel important because of the weakness of the eyes observing you and force you to reach out to something higher. Something higher. I'm a slave of God and I don't want to be free. That is my choice. I chose to be a slave of God. I chose to be a slave of righteousness. I've chosen to be a slave of wisdom. I will struggle with it, but I'm a slave of it. I don't matter what it does to me. I don't want to be a slave of mediocrity though. I don't want to be a slave of a human being. I've been bought with a price. Be ye not servants of men. Please, that is not that you will not defer to seniors and authority figures. But that means that that association is governed by principles, not subserviency. Are we on the same page? So when you read scriptures like Genesis 1, 26, 28, 27, you must pick instruction. The conversation there essentially is that dominion is not a Christian resolve. Dominion is not a Christian experience. Dominion is not a Christian fundamental right. Dominion is not the inheritance of Christians. Because when man was told to have dominion, there was no Christian living in the world. Not one. In fact, the concept of Christianity was not on ground at all. Christ is yet to come or die. So the blessing of dominion was not on the Christian because there was no Christian condition in the world. The blessing of dominion was on the human condition. The human being is the carrier of dominion. Born again or not, he has that dominion. If you don't believe me, go to the circus and go and see lions obeying human beings. See lions dancing. 
see python, deadly python, moving to a tune in the hands of human beings. Go and see tiger giving high five to lion. And then you see, you see an hyena that is designed to kill, moving side by side a sheep together. He still has his teeth there, all his claws are there, and he's not killing because he's tamed by the dominion of human beings. You see those guys training those animals? They are not born again. That is the proof the dominion is still there. They have dominion over every living thing. Oh, come on now. Am I talking to you? And the book of James affirmed it. Said man has controlled everything. And man will continue to control everything. Don't judge them by what they control. Assess them by how they control their tongues. Because it's easier for human beings to control lions than their tongue. Human beings can control the entire jungle with all the tigers, control everything, build skyscrapers, mega cities, but their tongues, as small as it is, can kill them in a day, can destroy all their legacy in a minute. That is the upside of it. The other side of it is that they can control anything. <laughs> anything else is the easiest thing for them to do. Now, what happened to Abscom? Real quick, real quick. What happened at the Garden of, in the, before the fall, was that this guy was the man in the Garden. And this guy had dominion over every living thing, over every creeping thing. And he was told to fill the earth, subdue it, nurture it, do everything. He has dominion. After the fall, people claim that he lost the dominion. And that is the general tractioned, scaled theology that when he fell, he lost that dominion. But the Bible never said that. When he fell and God was responding to his nuisance, God did not say, cursed are you. God said, cursed is the ground. He was never touched. There was not one statement from God that touched him. It was the ground that was touched, and the dominion was not in the ground. It was in him. Let me tell you how dominion is, so that you can understand. You see, to this guy and to every human being, there are parts. There is your visible and tangible parts. Your hands, your legs, your eyes, your, your, your chest, your neck, your fingers, your nails, your hair. They are your parts that are visible to everybody. There are also your tangible but invisible parts. We can't see them. No, they are not invisible. They are visible, they are tangible but unseen, not invisible. Because what is unseen is not necessarily invisible. So for example, your kidney your kidney is tangible, we can hold it, but it's unseen. To see it, we either have to kill you or perform some sort, well, we have to cut you open. Your liver, your brain, they are all visible parts. They are physical, tangible parts, but we cannot see them except we come into you. Are we together? Yeah. Then there is your intangible and invisible parts. For example, your reasoning. Your thinking, your dominion, 
Dominion is DNA, guys. Dominion is a part of you as your reasoning is a part of you. Dominion is a part of you as your thinking is a part of you. Nothing can take that away. Before the fall, the application of the dominion, everything on him was ease. So before the fall, to have access to this, it was already here. It's just for him to start operating it. Before the fall, everything was available. After the fall, the ground was cursed. Everything is still intact. His eyes are still intact. His nose are still intact. His liver is still intact. His, his kidney is still intact. His reasoning is still intact. His thinking is still intact. His dominion is still intact. But it's, the land is cursed. And so, to have access to this thing is not behind Steph. This thing is now behind Steph right here. So, for him to have access to it, right, after the fall, cursed is the ground. In toil, you are not going to find that thing. In stress, you are not going to find that thing. You have it. You have access to it. Your dominion is still intact, but no longer with the ease at which you assess it. So, hustle now begins. Please stop, stop owning hustle. That's culture talk. Stop saying my hustle. You are not a hustler. You are not designed to hustle. Ease is your destiny, not hustling. Hustling is toil. Some people even say they have my own, my hustle. I said, your own? No, I don't hustle. Ease is my right. So what he lost in the garden was ease. Now to find that same thing, he will spend three weeks assuming it is here. He will spend two weeks thinking it is here. He will spend another two months thinking it is here. Then he will run for another nine months thinking it is here. Then somewhere after two years, he finally found it right here. <laughs> the same thing he could have found with ease the moment he needed it. That is the difference between pre-fall and post-fall, not the elimination of dominion. His dominion is now stretched and stressed because of the fall, but his dominion is intact. Are we together? Do you understand that, guys? When you understand that, then it's easy for you to see why sinners are still applying that dominion to build Samsung, to build big corporations, to grow the internet, to build, because they still have that dominion to do and to undo. In Genesis 11, after the fall, God said whatever they imagine will not be stopped. Even after the fall, they still had the capacity to do anything. And he said, whatever they imagine, that means it's a blank check. Put anything there, they will do it. So the fall, so even before the arrival of Christ, after the fall, God is still acknowledging that there's no impossibility in their dictionary if they find collaboration and creative imagination. Are we on the same page? Even before Christ, so it's not even Christ that came to now restore the dominion. The dominion never left. What Christ came to do is another ball game altogether. And I'm going to try to end on that note today because my time is up. But understand this, guys. When you then go to 1 Corinthians 3, it speaks to the maturity of the believer. And we read it. He said, I, I, I want to give you spiritual things. I want to feed you with spiritual things, but I can't 
because you cannot take it. I have to feed you with milk. I have meat. I have quality meat. But your dentition cannot hold it together. I've had to now accept that I have to serve you milk. That is a very, very sad scenario if you paint the picture. Because these are people that are, by their age, qualified for solid food. But God had to accept that they still have to use diapers. So that is like using diaper for a 42-year-old man. That's like feeding milk to... That is a charity case. When you go down to it, just imagine that I come to church today in diapers and I carry feeding bottle and I'm sucking on feeding bottle. And that's all of us are doing. That's what was happening in 1 Corinthians 3. Everybody in the church, we're all carrying feeding bottle. And let me tell you, in many churches today, Sunday in, Sunday out, week in, week out, people carry that same bottle with diapers, with milk, sucking, but nobody knows because it's covered with six-foot-tall broad-chestedness with beards and white, white, white beard, gray hair and all of that, shoes and suits and big cars, and it looks like these are men. These are kids. It looks like these are women. No, these are girls. These are little girls. Am I talking to you? There is a sense in which you can serve Jehovah Jireh and that's all he is to you. But I kid you not in the name of Jesus. Bill Gates cannot receive the gospel of Jehovah Jireh. Bill Gates will be more at peace with the gospel of let there be. Let there be light. Let there be internet. Let there be kingdoms. If you meet Bill Gates, what do you tell him? How are you going to preach to him? This is your year. But what are you going to say? You will make it. You will grow. No, no, think about it. If you meet Jeff Bezos, what are you going to say to him? You will multiply. You will grow. You are going to make it. What are you going to say? That's the day you realize your gospel is limited to the geography of your own pain and experience. The freedom you have known is the character of your theology. And, but theology in itself, available in God, is bigger than your own experiences. We all have to come to that place. Am I talking to you? So, this is what I say. An American ministry wants to supply gas to a village in Kano. In America, we don't use cylinders, right? I'm sure you don't use cylinders here, right? because everything is pretty much piped and wired into the homes. So the, the burden of carrying cylinders around to have access to gas is taken away by infrastructure. Are we on the same page? But if an American ministry or a United Kingdom ministry wants to supply and support a ministry somewhere in Kano or in Banjul in a village, they have the system that passes gas through the old house and through all the cities, they would have loved to give them that type of support, but they cannot offer them that support, not because it's not available, but because their own infrastructure cannot handle it. So as much as they love them, and they would love to give them the excellence that is available in America or the United Kingdom, they have to endure to downgrade to the level of the infrastructure of the village in Kano or in Banjul or Konakri. You understand what I'm saying? Not because of unavailability, 
but because of their own inability to contain that particular excellence. And so, so many times, God wants to bless you and advance you to a level, but your infrastructure cannot allow him to do in you what is available for you. So, the past seven years or ten years or five years, is busy trying to upgrade your infrastructure to receive the excellence that is available. And because you are being supplied at your level of mediocrity and infrastructure, you define that level of supply as the character of his supply. And you teach people by the level of your experience, not knowing that your experience itself is a permissible quantity based on your reality. So you fail here. Somebody else come here, sees this seat, and walks away. Because he uses God-given eyes to see there is a barrier here. I shouldn't go through this place. You, in your unguardedness and distraction, using your phone, you came here and you hit this thing and fell, and now you are bleeding. And you say, God, help me. And God came and helped you. And you know you didn't call some God. You didn't call Shango or Rumila or Majora or some idol or some demon or something. You called the name of Jesus and he showed up. And he helped you and cleaned you up and put plaster and put spirits and iodine and put some things there and cleaned you up and make you better. Then you stood up because God helped you. Then you turned and started teaching people around you that the way you were treated is the way God heals. That's not how God heals. That's how God heals people who are blind, unserious, distracted. He has better ways of helping people. That is the way it could help you because that is what you can handle. Somebody else in God will not even need help in that situation because he will have just avoided this thing. God is supplying time, supplying energy, managing space time. You are forcing him into time. There's nothing called time, guys. You just don't know. There's something called space. There's nothing called space. You can't have where without having it in when. And you cannot have when without having it in where. Every time you make a distinction between time and space, you draw God back into your clock and into your limits. Because there's no such thing as independent time. There's no such thing as independent space. Space and time are always together. When and where are together. Where and when are together. There's no such thing as time or space. There's space-time. Once you understand space-time, you know the future is not ahead of you. The future is in you. So when you say you are going to die and then you are going to go to heaven sometime, you don't understand parallel universe. There is a theory of parallel universes that says that you can be in two different places doing two different things at the same time. And that's not impossible. We are all in this room, but we are all seated with Christ in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. That's not going to happen when we die. That is happening now. Now. The question of your journey is never an issue. The question of your responsibility in the culture is the issue. Your destination is secured. You shouldn't worry about going to heaven when you have responsibility on earth. It's a Luciferian spirit. That is you contending with God's throne. That is you bordering the whole of heaven. That is you reenacting Genesis 11 again. Taking responsibility to go to heaven instead of filling the earth. God said, fill the earth, populate the earth. They wanted to fill the heavens. And he said, I don't have a problem with you filling the heavens. You will come to heaven, it's not my problem. But the commandment now is to fill the earth. Go and fill the earth. 
Heaven is not the challenge now. You are secured with God in Christ Jesus. Win here. Show people the character, the flavor, and the sweetness of your God here. Don't worry about me. See the Lord. Let your light so shine. Not before me. Your light can, what, how much can your light shine before me? I am your glory. Let your light so shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I receive glory not by you saying to God be the glory. No, that's not how I receive it. I receive glory by your demonstrated capacity in the culture. Have I helped you? I know my time is up. Pastor, I want to, without looking at you, I want to beg for five more minutes. Five more minutes. I'm not looking at you. I'm now going to look briefly. Five more minutes, man of God. Five more, I promise. Five more minutes. Can I take five more minutes? Just five more minutes. So your existence transcends your earthly experience. Your identity beats this place. This is not where you, you, this is not your end, neither is it your beginning. This is a part of your journey. There is a pre-womb existence. He said, before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. I did not just know you, I ordained you. I sanctified you. So you had an identity before the womb. Then you have a womb experience. Then you had a post-womb experience, which you call life. Then you have an eternal experience that transcends life. So there are really four levels of your existence. There's your pre-womb existence and identity. There is your womb identity and existence. There's your post-womb identity and existence, which is what you call life. So what you do is you block yourself out of the pre-womb, you block yourself out of the womb, you define your life by the womb, and you clock yourself out of eternity. Meanwhile, the Bible says eternity is locked in your heart. So it's not a choice that you have. Space lives in you. Time lives in you. God doesn't pay salaries every week or pay every three weeks or pay salaries or wages every month or every two weeks. God pays in seasons because God doesn't work with time. He works with space-time. And space-time transcends the limit of logic. So you can't limit everything to when you were born. When you were born, it's not the beginning of your life. You had an identity and a purpose that transcends where you are born. Your goal is to seek Christ. Let me tell you something. There's so much in your upbringing that has distorted your existence. I don't have time to break that down. The only way to reclaim it is not by going to therapists. And to all therapists, I bow. I show you your respect. But Jesus is not a life coach. He's, he's the life. Hello? Hello? Just in case you don't know. Jesus is not it. Before your therapy curriculum came, Jesus has been healing people, touching them and healing them in the soul. You understand what I'm saying? So there's a place for the supernatural, guys. You can legislate or, or therapeutically legislate the supernatural experience in Christ away. And stop making pastors feel guilty by not creating a department for therapists in the church. That is a symposium discussion. We can negotiate that, but that is not a necessity. Jesus is bigger than therapy. The entire curriculum is bigger than therapy. And don't get me wrong, therapy is a necessity. But it's not an independent quantity. I know therapy is struggling in their third marriages. 
prisoners offering freedom. I know it. I've seen it. I've been there myself. Not in marriage, though. But I've struggled where I promised freedom. Jesus is your perfect theology. I'll never forget that. I'll give you instructions, therefore. As I gave yesterday, I will give today. The future is complex. There's so many things emerging that we cannot articulate today. If you listen to yesterday's message, you'll understand part of what I'm saying more. And go get it and listen to it. But these are not times for the weak at all. These are not times for the small-minded. These are times where you need to stand tall in your power. And standing tall is not just empty braggado. It's consciousness and awareness of your spiritual condition. Education will do a lot of things to the world, and it has done. Academics has kept the world regulated and conditioned, necessity. Two people can open your tummy. One can close it back. The other one cannot close it back. One minute, 50 minutes more. One minute, 50 seconds more. The difference between two people who can open your tummy, one can close it, one cannot close it, is that one is a surgeon, trained, the other one is not, it's just a killer. When you need your tummy opened, how do you know they want to go and meet? Academics allow you to know that. So academic is a necessary condition in the system and in the culture to allow for regulation, eliminate mediocrity and quacks, and help us to focus on what is necessary in the system. It is not the end of what is possible. There's education that transcends academics. Academics is what you are taught by the curriculum and the thinking of human beings like you. Education is what you teach yourself by observation. Education is the ability to observe your environment, to question it deep enough to find the options that exist in it, and to know the ones to embrace as a matter of supreme importance and urgency. By that definition, you are not educated even with a PhD. If you cannot experience your world, if you cannot question your world, if you cannot find the options that exist in your questioning, and if you cannot know the ones to embrace as a matter of supreme importance and urgency, you are not educated even if you have a PhD. Education has changed the world. It's given us merchant banking. It built the pyramid. It gave us all kinds of equipment. The internet gave us Apple, gave us Google, gave us Microsoft. But the next level of dominance transcends education is revelation. I prophesy to you in the name of Jesus, I kid you not. I kid you not. Academics has done its value. Education has dominated the world. The next level of power and domination is revelational. It's not what you are taught. It's not what you teach yourself. It's what you are given. Academics is what you are taught. Education is what you teach yourself. Revelation is what is revealed to you. It's vertical. It's up, down, not horizontal to man to man. And so listen, guys, you don't look at your environment to know what to do. You look unto God to know what to do. For wisdom and understanding shall be the stability of thy times and the strength of salvation. You will be powerful and strong in the culture. Produce results that unlock the humility and the curiosity of the system to pursue your source because of your solidity in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, people, in the name of Jesus. God is advancing your ideas in this season. In these seasons, you will see. God will send you people. Open your mind. Don't take a look away from the billboard because of what is written on it. Take a second look on it because God will speak to you through the billboard. A paper on the floor will speak to you. In your room, your bills that they bought to your house, we have a quote under it that will give you the next instruction for your destiny. Open your mind, practice God's presence because you are at the brink of a major transformation. We are in an interregnum between cause and effect. And the entire software that runs the world has been changed. And the code 
code is being given to spirit-filled human beings like you and I. And the next 10 years, we see the beginning of the rise of the church. The future is 30. At the end of the next 30 years, religion will crack as we know it, but spirituality will grow. Faith will expand, and true worshipers of God will rise in the culture, in the fashion space, in the music space, in the education space, in the politics, in governance, in entertainment, in the media. You will see enterprise like never before. Ideas that transcend all that we have known and we have understood. New genres of music, new genres of expression are coming out through through, through spirit-filled Christians who we go to bed and in one moment of worship we receive what 50 years of research and 50 billion dollars in investment in research cannot receive like the cure to cancer, like the cure to diabetes. The formula for the cure to a disease will be revealed to you in a moment. The next level of the internet is here. The next level of social media. Just when we thought we've seen it all, TikTok came. Just when we thought we've seen it all, something bigger than TikTok is on the horizon. And it's not coming to everyone. It's coming to those whose ears are tuned to the lips of the master. If you let me lead you, I will teach you to profit. For your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Your strength will dominate this culture. They will seek your wisdom out. They will look for you. But you have to decide today to do four things. Number one, get your mind off the material. The material is your right. If there are tools to your execution, they are never your goal. Success is not a goal, it's an experience. The pipe does not try to be wet. Water passes through it. And every time water passes through it and people drink, a residue of what it passes out remains in it. For it that waters will itself be watered. And so keep passing out water and value stays with you. Number two, stay in God's word. No matter what you do in this season, please, I beg you, stay in God's word. Spend time in it. And I'm not asking you to read 200 chapters or 300 chapters. I instruct you by the Spirit of the Lord. A big, heavy-duty download to your spirit is coming. The next 90 days is key to your balance in this world. Your next 30 years will be determined by your next 90 days. In the next 90 days, clarity will visit you at a level unimaginable. Receive it with humility, but get ready to stay in God's word. And please, I will advise you further. When you read the word, don't try to recall what you read. It's unnecessary. It's not a textbook. Bible study is not a test of recall like textbooks do, like textbooks are. No. Just read, even if you sound like you've forgotten, it doesn't matter. I read the Bible at my level. If you ask me five minutes after, what did you read? I can't even tell you at times. But guess what? It doesn't need to be recalled in the day of contradiction, in the day of test. Everything will rise out of you. It will rise maybe as a resolve or as anger or as a quote, but it's coming out of you regardless. Stay in the word. Don't test its residency in you. Just keep taking it. Never test the residency of the word. Allow situations to bring out and prove the residency of the word inside of you. Number three, practice God's presence. And practice God's presence through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Expect to hear. When you go out, expect to be spoken to. Expect to see what people are not seeing. Just have expectation of the move of the Spirit in your life. And be aware that He is with you. This church is a physical representation of God's presence in you when we come together. When you are away, the church is still with you. There are people who cannot touch their girlfriend in church. If the girl said, touch me, they will say, are you crazy? We are in church. But when they go out of church, they can do that because they think they are out of the holy place. You are not out of the holy place. The only one lives inside of you. 
And even when you are alone, he's with you as you drink that bottle of beer. He's with you right there watching you. As he's with you in church, he's with you right there. Practice the consciousness of his presence and see how you will arrest your environment and make it concentrated for your new power in the name of Jesus. Have I helped you today? Father, in the name of Jesus, we receive, we receive clarity. We place a demand on the grace of God upon House on the Rock Church worldwide. We put a demand on the grace of God upon God's servant, Pastor Timmy Odejide, and all the graces available in this house. I put a demand on the grace of God upon my life as I understand it. I share by faith with everyone listening today. In this room, beyond this room, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for shifts. Thank you for miracles. Thank you for precision and clarity. Thank you for understanding. We receive it by grace. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We receive strength. We receive strength in the culture. Thank you for wisdom. Your eyes are blessed because they see. Your ears are blessed because they hear. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We give you praise and glory. We worship and we adore you. In Jesus' name we pray. We hope you've enjoyed this uplifting sermon from House on the Rock Church, the London Lighthouse. We hope you've been informed and inspired. Join us for services every Wednesday and Sunday. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at HOTR London. Also, live stream our services on YouTube at HOTR London. For more information, visit our website on hotr.org.uk.